HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2017. Cheers. I think overall, brunch is a forced parade of disappointment. Well, coming from a chef's perspective, horrible. (laughs) Brunch is purgatory where everything's just just fine at best. I really do think brunch is a party. Brunch to me, I guess you would say, is where you go to unwind after a long night out on Saturday. Get up and grab some food, get some Bloody Marys. Brunch is a must. So I don't want to be there. And just speaking for me and most of the times that I've gone out to brunch as a guest, the guests don't really want to be there either. It's fucking good, you know, fuck after a fucking hangover shit, you can just go down for it, you yeah. know, fucking anything you want. Mimosas, bottom lenses. What about working brunch? Yeah, oh my God, man. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> brunch is modern church. The bane of any restaurant worker's existence. Brunch is an adventure. A disaster. A real pain in the ass. Brunch is the devil's meal. The first time someone explained what brunch is, it was 1896. Guy Berenger, an Englishman who is by all accounts genteel and charismatic, outlined his vision for a better midday meal in an obscure periodical called Hunter's Weekly. He wanted a meal that could replace the traditional Sunday dinner, which was a heavy and perfunctory affair. He wanted a meal that was cheerful, sociable, and inciting. He suggested that we call it brunch. And we did. And it was all those things. For a time. But then it traveled to America. And it changed. Then it met the Roaring Twenties. And it changed. And it met Rosie the Riveter. And it changed. And it met the sexual revolution and the me generation and the gay pride movement and the hipsters and the millennials. And before you know it, Mr. Berenger's wholesome vision was a weekend-long bacchanalian carnival of well vodka and hollandaise sauce. All of which, taken as a spectrum, leads to one glaringly obvious and annoyingly sticky question. Just what exactly is brunch anyway? I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bar None, the show where we talk about some of history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Today, as you may have guessed, we're going to be talking about brunch, an emblem of conspicuous consumption which is both timely and timeless. When Guy Berenger first outlined his idea for a midday Sunday meal, he did it in a piece called Brunch, a Plea. And then, 119 years later, another piece appeared in the Sunday Review of the New York Times called Brunch is for Jerks. While Berenger's vision was of a pleasant and easygoing meal, Times author David Shaftel calls brunch the culinary equivalent of a Jeff Koons sculpture and says that, worse than adolescent, it is an adolescent's idea of how adults spend their time. 
Joining us today is Brunch's similarly maligned counterpart and mixological soulmate, the Bloody Mary. Cocktail luminary David A. Embry first addressed this particular drink in the preface to the second edition of his seminal text, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. And apparently, he wasn't too taken by it. Two exotic drinks I have been criticized for omitting from this book. One, the Bloody Mary, strictly vile. And the other, the Moscow Mule, merely mediocre. There's three kinds of people in the world. There's people who drink Bloody Marys. There's people who don't drink Bloody Marys. There's people who obsess over Bloody Marys. That is Brian Bartles, the bar director and managing partner of Happy Cooking Hospitality. His book on the Bloody Mary is coming out later this month, and his Green Bay Bloody Mary was named by Time Out New York as one of the 100 best dishes and or drinks of 2014. So I think we can safely put him in that third category. There's arguably more opinions that get circulated around it and, and you know, varying rabbit holes and degrees at which that we feel we're, we're extremely um, inspired to kind of, <laughs> I guess, uh, speak on behalf of this almighty beverage um, that everyone seems to be an expert on. Given all of this, it's easy to see brunch as a corruption of something that was once pure into something that's childish and petty. For that matter, it's easy to see the same thing happening to the Bloody Mary if you fire up the hashtag and bear witness to the international garnish arms race that's happening on Instagram. But I wanted to get both sides of this story, which is why you'll be hearing periodically from two industry experts who have a vast difference of opinion when it comes to this subject. The first, Chef Kyle Bailey in Washington, D.C., surprised me by being one of the few chefs I've ever encountered who will come out vocally in support of brunch. Personally, I love brunch. I think it's um, one of the best meals. Uh, if you're going to run a serious kitchen, it's the best um, meal period because everybody's miserable. You know, the entire staff is miserable. Everybody <laughs> hates being there. Um, and if you are, you know I, know, I know a lot of chefs who take brunch off. If you are the one chef in town who doesn't take off on Sundays when you're doing brunch, you're going to have the best brunch because you can keep your staff in line, keep morale high. They're going to have fun. They're going to they're gonna want to do a good job. And then on the other side of the debate, we have Souther Teague the beverage director of Amor y Amargo in New York City, who has 12 years as a chef under his belt and got less than 30 seconds into our interview before this happened. Last time we talked, we touched briefly on the subject of brunch, this new episode that we're doing. (laughs) You swear on your podcast? When it came to his views on brunch, he was pretty fucking clear on the subject. To get to the bottom of the to brunch or not to brunch debate, we first have to answer a number of fundamental questions about what it is where it came from, and above all, how it is that one is supposed to properly brunch. When he wrote his groundbreaking treatise in the late 1800s, Guy Berenger gave us a few simple rules to live by. It is talk compelling. It puts you in a good temper. It makes you satisfied with yourself and your fellow beings. It sweeps away the worries and cobwebs of the week. We demand everything good, plenty of it, variety and selection. Later, the Washington Post explained to its readers in 1933 that professional people, writers, and the people of the theater favor these gay breakfast parties. They are, of course, somewhat more substantial than the usual light repasts of every day, and in fact, they are more like an early luncheon. Someone has coined the term brunch to cover these breakfast lunch parties. Essentially, this laid out the blueprint for serving breakfast foods at a lunch volume. While Guy Berenger, in a cheeky postscript about serving whiskey and ale alongside coffee and tea, set the stage for a whole new cadre of drinks based around OJ and tomato juice. But not everyone was as smitten by these breakfast lunch parties as the professionals, writers, and people of the theater. Emily Post, the undisputed final authority on all matters of etiquette and stern-faced 20th century vanguard of good taste and decency, evidently was not a fan. Before there was Ann Landers and Dear Abby, Emily Post gave some advice to an inquiring mind who wrote into her column in 1942, asking about brunch. To me, the word brunch is the unpleasantly crippled combination of the words breakfast and lunch. It is a 12 o'clock breakfast. It has always been fashionable, especially in the hunting community. But why a hunt breakfast or a wedding breakfast should suddenly be called a hunt brunch or a wedding brunch is more than I can understand. Perhaps now that coffee is unattainable and big breakfast cups of it will be very hard to provide, the word brunch will be sent bunching back to the limbo whence it came. 
Um, I worked in places that did brunch, um, lots of them. Uh, and I can tell you right now, it's a loser for everybody involved, in my opinion, uh, including the guest, right? So it's a loser for the team because even if you do brunch Saturday and Sunday, all year long, that's your MO, right? That's only 104 services, roughly, right? So when is your team ever getting good at that? So I think that it's a, it's a curveball for the staff because they're not really good at it or ready for it ever. It's a curveball for the kitchen because it's not the food they normally make. It's, you know, two days a week maybe. Um, and it's a curveball for the guests because even if you came in last night, you can't get the thing you got last night if, you, if you're here today for brunch. Meanwhile, the Bloody Mary was also getting off to a rocky start. In 1951's The Bartender's Book, authors Jack Townsend and Tom Moore relegated it to a chapter near the back called Freak Drinks. The introduction to the chapter is essentially a warning label about the people that order these types of drinks, saying they belong with the sweetened belly wash of a soda fountain among the whipped cream, nutted, frappéed monstrosities and not a respectable saloon. They're cranks and freaks, for only cranks and freaks would drink such drinks. The authors then introduce the recipes by saying there will continue to be masochists who order these sideshow drinks. The recipes are included here. They are offered without recommendation. In all fairness, the Bloody Mary and its fellow vodka-based freaks did have an uphill battle ahead of them when they first landed on American soil in the 30s. In fact, when the Smirnoff distillery first opened its doors the year after repeal, it was the only one in the entire United States, and it would continue to stay that way for quite some time. The place was owned and operated by Rudolf Kunet, who'd bought the U.S. rights to the name and the recipe off of Vladimir Smirnov a few years back. Poor Vladimir was the only Smirnov out of over a hundred to escape Russia when being besties with the Romanovs went from being a really good thing to being a really bad thing in 1917 somewhat unexpectedly. Vladimir kept the family tradition alive with a small distillery in Paris, using the same recipe and even keeping the Russian royal eagles on the label, despite the fact that at that point, they had far outlived the Russian royal family. Kunet sensed a market for smooth, unassertive spirits with vast mixing potential in the wake of Prohibition, and he wanted to corner it. He wasn't wrong. He was just 20 years too early. People wouldn't really wrap their heads around vodka and its potential as a silent partner in mixed drinks until almost the 50s, at which point old Mr. Boston, that trusty yardstick of the cocktail world, started producing its own brand of the Russian spirit and expanded its repertoire of vodka drinks from one to five. It was in the 10th edition of their official bartender's guide that vodka was given its own section, and modern-day classics like the Bloody Mary and the Vodka Martini debuted alongside the Russian Cocktail, which had been the guide's only vodka-based drink from 1940 until 1953. It's kind of like a white Russian. You just have to replace the cream with old Mr. Boston brand gin. It is offered here without recommendation. The Bloody Mary, meanwhile, was enjoying a modicum of early success under a different name. A great number, well, really the majority of books from that era, don't contain a recipe for a Bloody Mary, but do list another drink called the Red Snapper, which is basically the exact same thing. This, of course, led to many authors over the past 70 years to wade into a squabble fight about who cribbed from who and who got there first, but the simple fact of the matter is that canned tomato juice was coming into its own at pretty much the same time vodka was. They were both new, they were both novel and kind of weird in their own way, so it's entirely plausible that multiple people in multiple different cities around the world hit on this idea to put the two of them together at about the same time, entirely independent of one another. Now, because the Red Snapper beat the Bloody Mary out of the gate by a hair, it ran smack into the sluggish U.S. vodka market. It compensated by switch-hitting between vodka and gin, and today is almost entirely made with the latter. If you're going to roll your own, the trick, at least in my opinion, is a pinch of dill, which can act as a peacekeeper between the often contentious flavors of tomato juice and juniper. Man, the Bloody Mary. I have a lot of trouble with that drink, mainly for the tomato juice. <laughs> like... That stuff is not a thing that I drink on its own. I don't think I've ever in my life said, you know what sounds great right now? I'm going to have a nice tall glass of tomato juice. So I struggle with that drink outright. 
uh, for that reason. I struggle with it equally for the vodka, um, which I just don't think brings anything to the party. And then, yeah, I feel like it's a very filling drink. I feel like I see these people, you know, at these places that serve a Bloody Mary in a pint glass, and I'm thinking to myself, man, you're about to just take down probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like eight ounces of tomato juice in addition to whatever else is in there plus the ice taking up the room. And you're going to order another one? Like, that's just two big bowls of soup. In 1921, brunch got an early and unlikely hero in Alice Foote McDougal. Her husband had died 14 years earlier, leaving her in a very specific type of poverty, one where you can have less than $40 to your name if you discount the nice house, the nice clothes, the maid, and the coffee import business your husband had left behind. The business, to be fair, was tanking. Alice had been badgering her husband for years to roast his beans as well as import them, something that nobody else in New York at that time was doing, but she'd been consistently laughed off as having women's ideas. Now that her husband was out of the picture, Alice, the Big Apple's only female coffee baron at the helm of a dying enterprise, had to make the family business run. She rented a stall in Grand Central Terminal and put this theory about self-roasting into practice. And passengers, enticed by the smell, would dash in to grab a pound or two before hustling to their trains. Soon they were asking to taste the coffee, so Alice started brewing it. Soon she noticed they were hungry, so she started offering snacks. Then she noticed they didn't have a place to eat her treats among the smog and noise and crush of Grand Central, so she created a tiny oasis in the crowd, complete with tables and china and blue silk curtains. And as she would later recall, Alice Foot McDougal had inadvertently invented an entirely new kind of restaurant without even realizing she'd done it. Gradually, people came in to buy their pound or five or ten as they dashed for their trains, commuting for dear life. Sometimes they asked to taste my coffee, and before we knew it, we were serving coffee from tiny tables and all unconsciously were laying the foundation of coffee houses. So now pause for a second and think about what makes brunch unique among meals. Every other major mealtime that we've invented has a set of rules that vary depending on culture and custom, but they usually don't come with a lot of built-in wiggle room. But brunch, as Guy Berenger pointed out, can kind of be whatever you need it to be. It's diverse, and it's versatile, and it can change with the times. Which takes us to that day in 1921, when a particularly nasty winter storm drove hordes of wind-battered, sleet-stricken Manhattanites into Grand Central Station. Alice, from her command post, scanned the huddled masses and immediately came to the only logical conclusion. Waffles. These people needed waffles. So she ordered her maid, for this was in that glorious time in American history where one could be poverty-stricken and still have a maid, to rush to the shop as fast as she could with batter and an iron, and soon the waffles were an institution. On a foundation of coffee and breakfast treats, Alice built an empire of restaurants, quiet, genteel places that catered to a new wave of young women entering the workforce, a vastly underserved market in New York at that time. Male critics by the score lined up for years to dump on her restaurants for being quaint or kitschy or just dumb, but Alice didn't care. She knew her clientele better than anyone else in the city. And besides, she was getting rich. Even though she probably wouldn't have been caught dead referring to the assortment of pastries and baked goods she sold to the women and commuters of Manhattan as brunch, Alice Foote McDougall was decades ahead of everyone else in her understanding of that meal. She got that it's not about what you serve or when you serve it or where you eat it. It's not about whether you do or don't offer coffee or whiskey or tea or Bloody Marys or whether any or all of those are bottomless. It's about the feeling of calm and peace and unambiguous enjoyment you get when you sit down for five minutes to eat a waffle. In all you do, in all you think, be beautiful. This model of brunch as sanity preserver was echoed by Dorothy Marsh in the tellingly titled 1936 article, How We Abolished Weekend Drudgery at Our Home. 
Rather than a much-needed respite from the crush of New York City, Dorothy envisions the switch from three meals on Sunday to two as a way to finally squeeze some enjoyment out of her weekends. Now, when the family votes for a round or two of golf, a few hours in the garden, a long hike or a swim on Saturday afternoon, I am not too busy with dinner preparations to join them. As for Sunday, we all have a say as to when its two meals shall be served, and never once do we let these two meals step out of bounds and dictate to us. We're just as well fed and lots happier, I know. And Sunday in our house now is a day when each of us has a chance to rest. Yes, even I, the cook. And I find it an easy way for a businesswoman to entertain without a lot of fuss. For much of the brunch can be prepared on Saturday, my day at home. The idea of brunch as time saver for the working woman was already starting to creep into society in the years before the war, but it would become even more essential in the years that followed. Or even if it's not that, but it's, it's you know, um, you get to go out with your friends. Maybe you can't go out at nighttime and get, um, get plastered. So you go to uh, so you go to an awesome brunch spot as an adult, as a, as a responsible adult. You go to uh, <clears throat> a nice brunch spot. You get some some eggs Benedict and uh, and a Bloody Mary, and uh, that's that could be your fun time. Like that's I, don't know, I guess that's what that says as society. We're, we're trying to eke out as much fun as we can. You know, it's uh, things don't get easier. You know, things only ever get harder. The Bloody Mary also had something interesting happen to it in New York in 1921. Well, actually, the date itself is a little in dispute, and the place it happened was Harry's New York Bar, which is very much in Paris. Nevertheless, we know that sometime that decade, a barman named Fernand Petiu, or Pete to his friends, started mixing up a heretofore unknown concoction of vodka, spices, and tomato juice. I believe they even say, like, specifically 1921 was when Petiu started making this vodka and tomato juice cocktail at Harry's Bar. Um... But that's really difficult to actually, like, claim, given that uh, tomato juice wasn't available until 1928. They didn't can tomato juice until, yeah, shortly after that. Um, so if he was making tomato juice, uh, it was definitely with, like, he was basically, like, muddling tomatoes or uh, and, and crushing tomatoes in order to blend it with uh, the vodka. Nevertheless, we do know that by the time Prohibition ended... Pete had moved to New York proper, where he started mixing his famous tomato juice cocktail at the St. Regis Hotel. And for a while, the Bloody Mary, or the Red Snapper, or whatever you prefer to call it, toiled in relative obscurity, because as we have seen over and over and over again, it takes one set of skills to mix the perfect drink, and an entirely different one to make it famous. Which is why, the next time your head feels about three sizes too small and you reach for a nice, big, savory glass of tomato and booze, you should remember to say a silent thank you to George Jessel. Jessel was an old-school vaudevillian actor, one of those larger-than-life figures whose main contribution to the world of cocktails was in the form of consumption instead of production. In his autobiography, he recounts the story of one particularly unpleasant morning in Florida, when his presence was requested, but thanks to the events of the night before, he had precious little of it to give. Desperately looking for relief, he jumped behind the nearest bar and grabbed whatever was to hand. Tomato juice, Worcestershire sauce, lemon, and this weird-looking bottle labeled vodka. And as he's choking all of this down, in walks Philadelphia socialite Mary Warburton in a brand new, spotless, white dress. And so... Once the inevitable had occurred with the spilling and the gasping and the looking and the long, pronounced silence, Mary, in an incredible act of charity, looked at George and quipped, Well, I suppose you'll have to call me Bloody Mary now. Which is a great story. And sadly, it's one that's probably too good to be true. The reason I've always had difficulty accepting that, even though it, it, it is pretty like like Jessel actually references it in his biography, uh, his autobiography. Um, but uh, I, I just I find it I find it really difficult to believe. You know, he has all this recall at eight in the morning of this very specific thing that happened, like you know, sixty years late, uh, sixty years prior to like him <laughs> telling this story. He he was very much an entertainer and very much like had these like he regaled people with these wild stories of. You know, living, living like 
uh, Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole. Okay, but if that's not the case, where did the name Bloody Mary come from anyway? There are a handful of theories floating around, the first and most widely circulated being its connection to Mary I of England, one of many monarchs that history just loves to hate. There's also the theory that it was named not after Mary I, but Mary the Waitress, a perennial good sport at a Chicago restaurant whose actual name was the Bucket of Blood. Apparently, the place was something straight out of Roadhouse, but then again, I can't really imagine a place called the Bucket of Blood making a play for the society crowd. And then there's this last theory, Brian's favorite. The fourth theory, probably my favorite, um, I would say in a romantic uh, sense, is there was always this, this, this woman named Mary who sat at um, alone at the bar at the St. Regis uh, waiting for a gentleman to show up who never arrived. She'd come in once a week or once she'd come in by herself and she would always claim that there would be somebody there to eventually join her and um, – that, that one, that one, uh, she just was just this like sweet, you know, sad, um, lovely woman who was always alone at the bar, and that got like the the Bloody Mary reference. I always just kind of like like that one because it, it it speaks to I guess my own heart from a bartender who's had to deal with people who are solo, you know, diners or solo drinkers who are kind of stood up and it sucks. Aww. That is, that is a really sweet <laughs> yeah. story. It is a nice story, yeah. Um, I mean, that would be amazing if she, you know, if, if she found out eventually that this calling it the Bloody Mary is probably not what she would have been inspired by. But at the same time, uh, hey, it's nice to be be known, to be remembered. In an interview with The New Yorker in 1964, Pete Petue did cede credit for the drink's invention to George Jessel and his terrible morning in 1921. But whether this was because that's the truth or because Petu, like all experienced bartenders, knew that a drink always tastes better with a great origin story, we may never know. What we do know for sure is that Petu immediately added that Jessel may have invented it, but he was the one who perfected it. The young, um, young people with disposable income, um, but not too much disposable income, and they're still trying to pay off you know, colleges or whatever it is. You can get um, you can get out of there with a twenty five dollar check average and be completely full and drunk, and it's you know the last day of your um, weekend. You can go home and take a nap, and it's and, and it is a hedonistic um, kind of release, man. It's kind of brunch is pretty much um, dessert. It's like breakfast dessert. <laughs> Who doesn't love dessert? This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. In 1941, the first advertised brunch popped up in New York City on the menu of the Fifth Avenue Hotel. By the end of the decade, Tavern on the Green had followed suit with a Sunday brunch that lasted from noon to three. And by the time America's golden martini years rolled around in the 1950s, brunch was everywhere. Teresa Neffi's piece, We Switched to Sunday Brunch, appeared in 1957, and it speaks volumes about where the nation's priorities were when it came to staying happy and fed, as well as the hoops women had to jump through in order to make it happen. My husband and I were raised in the tradition of the big Sunday dinner. The table groaned with large roasts of beef, two or three kinds of vegetables, potatoes, rolls, preserves, cakes, and pies. Finally, I decided there must be a better way to plan Sunday meals and activities. We wanted our family together on Sunday to build the unity so necessary to happy family life. I wanted to skip the long preparation of vegetables. The answer was a Sunday brunch. This is served at noon, when church is over, but the afternoon hasn't actually started. The menu is simple, 
as an early meal should be, and makes good use of convenient frozen foods, mixes, and bakery products. We always have fruit juice with mint or fruit or an ice added, then a hot dish, followed by Danish or coffee cake, milk for the children, and lots of coffee for adults. The main dish may be a platter of bacon and eggs, or French toast, with a choice of jam, jelly, marmalade, or honey butter. Sometimes it's hot cakes. We start a little early and have two griddles. Or it may be a huge pile of sausages and biscuit jackets. Yes, at our house, the big Sunday dinner has given way to a hospitable brunch. And we love it. Setting aside for the time being the cry of relief that is screaming in between the lines here, we can see a couple of important themes developing when it comes to brunch. First, as Teresa has made thoroughly clear, anything goes at brunch. You want eggs? Sure. Bacon? Sure. Toast? Why not? A huge pile of sausages and biscuit jackets? Knock yourself out. The primordial ancestors of the French Toast BLT and the Sushi Benedict are here absolutely, but what's also apparent is the desperately needed respite this midday meal provided for poor, frazzled Teresa. This was an era where women were still expected to cook and clean and basically do everything involved in the raising of the children they'd already carried and given birth to, and if they wanted or needed to work as well, well, go ahead and have it all, baby. A Sunday brunch meant that these women could finally take some time off, at least for one day out of the week. Now we're in a time where leisure is, is much more attainable, um, even if we you know, have to toil the week away. Uh, you know, and go home and, uh, you know, I don't know, eat ramen or whatever to scrimp and save for that weekend where we can go out with our friends and show off and have a good time and get loud and rowdy and, and yeah, get, get a little, get a little buzz and stay that way for 48 hours. I think that's, I think it's a, I think it's great, frankly. Like, I feel, I feel like it, it's, it's marking a time, um, that's still new to us. You know, we're, we're still adjusting to the idea that, we don't work a six-day work week. That, that's not that long ago. I feel like we're finally to the place where we can say to ourselves comfortably and, not, and without feeling too selfish that, oh, uh, you know what, yeah, I'm just going to kind of get pleasantly buzzed and stay that way all weekend long. Why not? By this time, the Bloody Mary was popping up in all sorts of books. It appeared in the Stork Club Bar Book in 1946, the Diners Club Drink Book in 1962, and the Esquire Drink Book in 1956, which featured an alternate recipe for a frozen Bloody Mary, should anybody out there be so inclined. It also appears in the delightfully pocket-sized Little Cocktail Guide, a compendium about the size of a disappointing pancake, which lists the Bloody Mary as one of two cocktails that are vodka's own. But an interesting phenomenon is happening as all these different recipes emerge. None of them seem to agree on the exact same set of ingredients. Looking at all these various books, everybody's come to a consensus on vodka and tomato juice, and most people seem to agree on lemon as well. But after that, the rules completely break down. Some people say Worcestershire sauce, some people say Angostura bitters, some people say black pepper, some people say red pepper, some people say celery salt, and the problem is we can't definitively say who was on the right side of history because this is still an issue we're dealing with today. Take a survey of 12 different bars on a Sunday morning, and I all but guarantee you're going to find at least 10 different recipes for a Bloody Mary. Which is weird, because imagine if this were to happen when someone ordered a margarita. Okay, so I swapped out the tequila for mezcal, I did Luxardo instead of Cointreau, I threw in some honey syrup instead of the agave, I added a couple dashes of tiki bitters, and I topped it with an IPA. Anyway, enjoy. I asked for a margarita. This is a margarita. Can I speak to your manager? And understandably so. But now imagine the same thing, but with a Bloody Mary. Okay, so I swapped out the Worcestershire for soy sauce, I added a little sriracha instead of Tabasco, I threw in some pickled okra brine, I added a couple dashes of Creole bitters, and I topped it with a dash of lime juice. Enjoy! Sounds delicious. Here, have 50 bucks. Okay, that last part I made up, but the rest of it isn't so far outside the realm of possibility. And why is that? It could be, as we've discussed, that the Bloody Mary seems to have a couple different points of origin, and the most evolutionarily streamlined version, the Bloody Cro-Magnon, if you will, has yet to emerge. It could also be an etymological issue. 
When looking at these books from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there seems to be one particularly popular variant on the Bloody Mary called the Bloody Bloody Mary. This derivation seems like it was pretty well known. And given the fact that this most common spinoff was just a doubling up of the first part of the name, and given that bartenders are naturally a curious and cheeky bunch, it doesn't seem too far-fetched that eventually someone would have made a bloody, bloody, bloody Mary. And then some other smartass out there probably did a bloody, 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 bloody Mary, and then by the time someone took it to the fifth power, everyone just kind of threw up their hands and said, Stop! Enough! They're all just Bloody Marys now. This is mostly speculative. A written recipe for a triple Bloody Mary or anything higher up the food chain than that has yet to surface. But at the end of the day, the simplest explanation for why there are so many different Bloody Marys might be the most logical. It's just not a drink that does well with rules. Like its counterpart brunch, the Bloody Mary is a combination of whatever you have on hand and whatever you need it to be. People, I, I think like to associate it with simplicity. Uh, um, everybody, every home bartender can pretty much wiggle their way through a recipe for a Bloody Mary. If, if they, if they've got, you know, five or six of the, the defining ingredients, they can make it happen. In 1969, Helen Gurley Brown, author of Sex and the Single Girl, published The Single Girl's Cookbook, in which brunch played a prominent role not just as a creative way to entertain or as a family time saver, but as a way to dabble in practices that might not have been publishable just a few years earlier. In addition to being a fun meal for the almost overnight guest, as Brown puts it, brunch is an avenue for women to not just condone daytime drinking, but to actually enjoy it themselves. While her predecessors may have mentioned that cocktails could possibly potentially be served at brunch, Brown encourages it even going so far as to turn her nose up at people who don't want to pair their breakfast with mimosa. Piffle to the guests who only drink puritanical highballs at brunch, she wrote. This morning, he'll just have to be more adventurous. I don't think that you can get to any brunch anymore that doesn't have a bottomless, um, bottomless mimosa thing, and that's kind of a cool thing for the customers, <laughs> I think. Um, but, uh, I mean, you see, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a slow growth, kind of a grandiose thing. It, it gets a little bit better and a little bit better. But really, I mean, how far can you, really how far can you take it without pricing yourself out of it? You know, it does have to be cheap stuff. It does have to be inexpensive. Nobody wants an expensive brunch. Nobody wants a stuffy brunch. It should be fun and playful and um, warm and inviting and um, plenty of booze. Now let's stop for a second here because there's a theme that's starting to emerge around brunch. And I'm not just talking about the fact that most of the innovators we've discussed so far are women, although that is significant, especially in the old boys club of the culinary world. The truly interesting thing about all these people, actually every single one of them since the guy that invented it, is that they're women who operate not just on the edge of what society considers acceptable, but sometimes even beyond that. And as the standards change, the boundary pushing doesn't. Whether they wanted to work in the 50s or get laid in the 60s, these were pioneers who were pushing issues that wouldn't have flown during the three square meals of the day. And make no mistake about it, the rules of society are structured around mealtimes. Take a look at Emily Post's book on etiquette and see how many pages are dedicated to table setting if you don't believe me. In fact, anti-brunch advocate though she was, there was one thing that Emily Post had in common with Alice the Waffle Baroness. Both of them were single mothers. I also used to think back then, I think I've changed my mind a bit now. Back then, though, I feel like brunch was a predominantly female service period. Um, and the story that I always tell people about that one is it's never happened in my experience as a 47-year-old man um, that I was hanging out on Friday night with my bros or whatever, depending on what age I was, and I was getting pretty ripped up, and it's 2 in the morning, and they're about to call last call. And I look, uh, I look at my buddy and say, Fellas, let's, let's get up and do brunch tomorrow. <laughs> right? So I feel like when, you, when I saw these young people at that restaurant three years ago, it would be mostly women. And the men that were there, in my opinion, and again, I didn't pull them, were only there because the woman asked slash made them come. <laughs> right? So these dudes would look just pitiful. <laughs> the ladies would be all set up, you know, hair blown out, whatever, makeup on, 
you know, wearing nice clothes. The dudes were just a haggard mass of hungover, you know. Uh, i got to do this for my girlfriend or she's going to be pissed at me all week long, you know. That's total conjecture. But I, I see less and less of that. People look more put together and ready to go to brunch now. It's kind of, you know, just, just another thing we do. When he moved to D.C. in the mid-90s, Doug Shantz would go to JR's, a well-known gay bar in Georgetown, to pass out business cards. I'm having a brunch, he'd tell people. Please come. Around the same time, the culinary elite of New York City was starting to wake up and take notice of brunch, even though it had been a phenomenon for years in the gay neighborhoods of Chelsea and Greenwich Village. Now, more than two decades after that, Chance owns Nelly's, a much-beloved neighborhood gay sports bar, and is still close with a lot of the people he met at these boozy weekend affairs. I'd throw parties all the time. I was famous for Sunday brunches where people would come, but we never have any food. <laughs> It was just a huge vat of Bloody Mary mix. That was breakfast. By the way, if you do find yourself in the nation's capital with a weekend to kill, you could do a lot worse than the drag brunch at Nelly's. Plan your visit in advance, though. They tend to sell out a month ahead of time. As the 21st century rolled around and more and more people got comfortable with the notion of pulled pork benedicts and drinking at noon, it seemed like brunch had finally gone from being the meal of the single mom to the working mom to the single girl to the openly gay man to a meal that everybody, by and large, could kind of get behind. In fact, I'd wager to guess that if you've lived in America for any length of time, you have been to a brunch, even if you yourself don't personally brunch, and yes, when it's a verb, it is different. This meal that had been a perennial outsider for so long had finally been accepted into mainstream society, which is great. And then this happened. Brunch is terrible. Brunch is a fucking nightmare. Horrible. The bane of any restaurant worker's existence. Now we're in a culture of, I don't want to call us leisure, but we are... We, we seek and go hard for the leisure time that we're afforded, right? And so for the masses, that's Saturday and Sunday. And I think what they want to do is get off work Friday night, hit the happy hours, hit the bars, do the thing they normally do, weekend warrior, and then they want to get up in the morning on Saturday and Sunday and continue that, that high. They want to have a drink, of course, but they also want to have some sustenance to help get them over what they did to themselves last night and get them started on what they're about to do tonight. And what does that... What does that kind of say about our society at large? Is it that, that that's how we choose to spend our time, do you think? I mean, I think, again, it says that we have uh, more opportunities for leisure than we used to have. But also I think that it's, you know, it's our chicken nature, right? I talk about chickens sometimes and how, uh, you know, how funny it is to go to a free-range chicken farm. I don't know if you've ever been to one. Chickens are flocking birds. <laughs> they like to be really close together, so even when they have a lot of room, they stand really in the corner altogether. <laughs> and I think that humans have a similarity to that in that we want to be around people all the time. And I think getting out of bed on Saturday morning and you know dragging your hungover ass out to brunch with your friends and among people is a thing that we seek. It's not just that people who come through the bar on weekends are high maintenance. High maintenance is fine. High maintenance is workable. It's that the neediness takes on this very specific malicious tint on Saturday and Sunday mornings that it doesn't have during the week. Somehow, all the special requests manage to sound weaponized. There's a big difference, for example, between asking if someone can grab more butter from the kitchen and demanding that they spread it on your toast. And you can only have so many people ask to sub bacon for the fries or bacon for the toast or bacon for the coffee before you start to wonder, is this what it looks like when restaurant society bottoms out? Does anyone actually enjoy this? Or are we all deep down just a bunch of free-range chickens eating and drinking and tweeting at the same trough? Is there something about it that you're just like, I hate this one aspect of this meal? or this culture, or the people that eat it, or anything like that? Is there one thing that just really gets under your skin? <clears throat> Everything gets under my skin, and that's kind of why I like it. Um, I like the idea of um, just shutting up and doing your job. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of nobility that comes out of that, and humility, and dignity that you can, that you can pull from that. Where 
you know, like I said, so it's it's an early meal, so you got to wake up early, man. And like, you know, I don't go to bed till four in the morning, man, every night. And it's not just me; it's every chef, man. Um, we go to bed late, we wake up very early to come in, and everybody's miserable and hungover, and you get to snap them out. And like, hey, if we're gonna be here anyway, let's just have a good time. Let's do a good job. We'll make some money. We'll have some fun. We'll cook a big family meal. We'll have, you know, we'll have that thing. The customers are difficult. Um, your host doesn't show up, you know. Um, and the servers who do show up haven't combed their hair. You're like, come on, man, what is this? You know, it's like, it's one of those perfect train wrecks that if you play it correctly, you can turn the entire day around and have an awesome day. And then, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's Sunday, and you get to go home and have a have an awesome night's sleep, and then you made a, you made an impression. You did a good job. But to answer your question, everything, yeah, the, entire, the entire day sucks, man. It's misery. <laughs> At the end of the day, David Embry did come around to vodka, albeit in his own curmudgeonly sort of way. The spirit he'd originally written off as vile and flavorless gets about as close to an apology as he ever got in the third edition of his book, when he halfway admits that maybe there's some potential there. There are... However, a number of drinks, the recipes for which specifically call for vodka and for whatever they may be worth, here are two dozen of the more common ones. And when it comes to rolling your own, here is a liquor with which you can experiment endlessly. Just remember that it has absolutely no flavor on its own. Use it solely for alcoholic content, relying entirely on your quinquinas, fruit juices, cordials, and other spirits for your flavor. And there is practically no limit to the concoctions you can devise. Some good, some so-so, and some absolutely putrid. As for Emily Post, well, she didn't change her mind about brunch. But this really wasn't a woman who changed her mind about anything. But in 2008, her great-great-granddaughter, Anna Post, published a piece about engagement parties on the website of the Emily Post Institute. It doesn't really apologize to brunch per se, but at least it gets a seat at the breakfast table. This may seem unsettling. It's your first wedding event and there's no blueprint to follow. But the beauty is that you have the chance to create your own style of event. One that is most meaningful to you. A clam bake, a catered dinner, a casual brunch, or even a picnic in the park are all completely acceptable settings for an engagement party. You simply need to choose whichever type of celebration you'd most enjoy. The overall goal of an engagement party is to celebrate your joy. So relax and enjoy a get-together that is as formal or relaxed as you are. She filed this advice under the heading, Have a Great Time. If I were allowed just one snippet of advice to all the weekend warriors and waffle magnates out there, that would be it. Have a great time. Because if you're at brunch and you're picking in a Spanish omelet you didn't want and you're slamming mimosas straight out of the pitcher because it's the only way that they will bring you more mimosas later and you are miserable, you are doing it wrong. And since this whole crazy business got started in 1896 in an article called Brunch, a plea, I'd like to take a minute to deliver my plea to brunch. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. Do it if you want, and don't do it if you don't. And if you do brunch, have a great time. Sleep late, drink at noon, eat pancakes until the sun goes down, but don't take it too seriously, and don't be too demanding. Because the walls of society are high and serious and demanding. Break the rules on the weekends, because we all have to live with the rules the rest of the time, and the rules are not always fair. Only eat waffles at breakfast. Women do the housework. Boys kiss girls. But if you let yourself have fun, even for just a couple hours every week, you can break the rules down one Bloody Mary at a time. Because fun doesn't happen at a specific time of day. It doesn't follow the rules of good etiquette. It is neither male nor female. Fun is cheeky, 
and subversive. It comes with ample servings of maple bacon jus, and it's powered by the hair of the dog that bit you. So please, if you're going to eat a lobster Benedict at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, don't be sanctimonious about it. Be joyful and thankful, and make sure that you get as much fun out of it as humanly possible. Because there's a good chance that that's where the cracks in the wall are. Oh, and be nice to the people that are making your drinks. Odds are they're just as hungover as you. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. As always, I want to thank our guests, Brian Bartles, Kyle Bailey, and Souther Teague, as well as our amazing cast, Elliot Kashner, Carolyn Kashner, Francesca Chilcote, Kristen Pilgrim, Mary Myers, Connor Hogan, and Colin Connor. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Join us again in two weeks when we'll talk about the aviation and the new lease on life it got thanks to this little thing called the internet. We'll catch you next time for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers.